Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome back for another episode of Out of the Vat, the podcast about philosophers' work and philosophers' lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. Today we're joined by Anne-Sophie Barvich. Anne-Sophie is a cognitive scientist and empirical philosopher based at Indiana University, Bloomington. She specialises in the philosophy of olfaction and published a book on the topic Smellosophy, What the Nose Tells the Mind, in 2020. Okay, hello Anne. Thanks for coming along. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, Can you first tell me a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Um, so right now I actually work on several different things because I'm kind of at the at the crossroads with what I do mm-hmm. and partly it's uh, the sense of smell so my research is on smell on cognitive science and the philosophy of science in that context and that's been that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years and now I'm moving a step further namely not just doing philosophy of science with smell and philosophy of cognitive science um, but moving experimental so really experimental in terms of um, starting my own laboratory hopefully because there's apparently no better time to start a lab than a <laughs> pandemic yeah. where you can't do any research um, so they're currently <laughs> renovating it it should be it should be done in about a month or so and it's going to combine EEG so where you record brainwaves uh, mm-hmm. with olfactometry, where you can have a controlled exposure of odors. And I'm interested in ambiguous stimuli and basically how the brain categorizes what something smells like, because many smells have more than one quality to it. So you can twist and tweak what semantic associations you have by either cross-modal cues or by priming. Um, and so this is basically what I, what I want to work on a little bit further. And one of my favorite examples is uh, sulfurol which is a molecule, if I say that, well, you don't know what it smells like. It's like, mm, okay, uh, it's kind of like fatty, organic, bit sweet, but you don't know what it is. But uh, And this was an experiment done by um, a perfumer, actually, Christophe Lodamiel. And he showed uh, to the audience, like they had the smelling strip, so nobody could fool you. You had it in your hand. And then he showed a picture of warm milk. And I kid you not, suddenly you're like... Of course, it's warm milk. Like, how could I not have smelled this before? Then he showed a picture of ham. And I kid right. you not, the milk was gone. It smelled of ham. And of course, that it feels quite different. And he switched back and forth and back and forth. And in your mind, it was like milk, ham, milk, ham. It was completely <laughs> bizarre. And I thought, that's cool. I want to I want to see yeah. what's happening in the brain while you're doing that. Like same chemical, you know it's the same chemical. And I also asked him, so you're pulling the trigger. You're, you're basically switching the images. Uh, you know this molecule inside out. And also he could not help but have this switch in his head. So that's what got me so intrigued to go not just from the conceptual side um, and, and kind of a- analyze that problem from the con- conceptual side, but to go experimental and see that's a philosophical issue that can be empirically tested, um, mm-hmm. which which is most of what I'm going to do in the next couple of years. But I also want to do a bit more history and philosophy of science again. It's been kind of moving a bit uh, away from it by by doing all this kind of smell stuff, by looking to the cognitive side of it. And through it was actually throughout building up this laboratory that uh, that reignited my interest in the methodological side. Mm-hmm. There's so many issues where I do think that philosophy and history of science has a beautiful impact on science. But differently, because one thing what I need and noticed is when I went into the lab, when I started building my own lab, that philosophy of science kind of, uh, you could say, let me down a little bit, because most of it is built on historical case studies, Mm -hmm. not on ongoing fast science. And that's basically where I want to 
kind of look a bit further, namely how do we need to change uh, how we think we do philosophy of science, the concepts of philosophy of science, if we deal with ongoing science, with fast science. Last year, of course, with COVID-19 uh, and this year still, that has become a rather pressing question. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, so, you had everybody chiming in. You had even physicists doing some modeling on COVID um, mm-hmm. and you had sociologists, etc. But philosophers were surprisingly quiet. I mean, there was a BGPS. Um, actually, there was a there was a short blog post by Jacob Stegenger. I hope I pronounced him right, um, which was pretty cool. And where he inquired across philosophy of science, like, so um, what do you think was so quiet when it comes to COVID and this rapid development? I was like, that's what I've been saying with smell. It's so fast you can't apply the same concepts like empirical success uh, for instance to something that's constantly changing where mm-hmm. there's a movability of data there's an ambiguity of data there's an inconsistency so things like robustness like okay we've got multiple strands of research and if they come together if they converge that's good evidence well if you have constantly discordant data how like there's a there's an empirical <laughs> yes. block, um, and that's basically the HBS thing I want to kind of pursue a bit more. Okay, so going back to your to your earlier more philosophical work on smell, so I, I take it you're coming at it in a, a kind of a philosophy of perception sort of approach. Um, can you tell us what's distinctive about smell as opposed to vision or, or hearing? So the most distinctive smell is that it scrupulously rebuts many of the traditional notions by which we describe perception. Um, So we often talk about objects of perception or perceptual objects. Well, how would you do that with smell? They don't seem to have clear-cut boundaries. It does not make make sense to say, well, there's the directionality of an odor. So a lot of these uh, spatial concepts, especially associated with, um, with vision, but increasingly also with audition, you speak of distance, you can partly apply them to smell, but there seems to be something not quite fitting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that we've built on, like the traditional theories of the senses, which is basically just theories of vision, mm-hmm. um, has been notions of representation and of objectivity. And neither is, let's say, intuitive for smell. I do think there's some representational value, but that also means we might want to rethink what we mean by objectivity and by representation. And my favorite case here is that, well, smell has often been dismissed for for theories of perception because, well, you and I, we can perceive the same odor differently. It seems to be subjective. It's a whim, the same odor to you. One day might smell different than the next day, but Mm -hmm. that's variation and variation is not subjectivity. So there is a lot of philosophical work to be done with these kind of concepts. Let's say um, there might be genetic differences. There might be differences in terms of association based on actually uh, associative learning. So these are all biological and psychological processes. And I think Mm -hmm. rather rather than trying to define objectivity by we all see the same thing from all different angles the same way um objectivity should rather be defined we have the same causal mechanisms that either lead to similar perceptions or the same causal mechanisms that cause these variations such as for instance genetic variability um because objectivity should not be defined by the same object in all circumstances but the same way in which the sensory system works so this is where find smell quite interesting. It forces us to rethink the traditional notions that were often pre-scientific. Same with representation. Um, It's been, of course, over the last decades, mainly defined uh, or inspired by brain representation in terms of neuro representation that you can literally find a map of visual stimuli in the primary uh, visual cortex. In smell, you can't. 
So the map, there is no map in the same way as this with audition and with uh, with vision. Mm -hmm. And partly uh, you have a beautiful mosaic um, and partly that makes sense. I mean, how would you spatially arrange odors in the brain? How would you map a smell? You have some chemical features, sure, but that's just not how it works. It's a developmental system and it's mainly a measure of the environment. Uh, so you have to take in um, the evolutionary history, the just the development, the personal history of, of, uh, of a species, like of an individual in a species. And these are, it's complex, but it's not arbitrary. And that's why I, I got so obsessed with smell. It forces us to rethink our intuitions about perception. Okay, great. So can, can you tell me a bit more about, about the experimental work you're, you're going to be doing? So obviously what, what I'm interested in is um, what you found lacking from the conceptual approach, what you wanted to, what you wanted to answer with the experimental stuff you're, you're, you're undertaking now. Well, that, that reflects a little bit my, 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 personal, uh, my personal story because I started, of course, not with the experimental stuff and mm -hmm. that I got into it and I'm getting further into it was partly lucky accident and uh, partly also the way, of course, research unfolds where you can't predict things. Uh, they just come together. And as Pasteur said, chance favors the prepared mind. Mm -hmm. But of course, uh, there has to be a chance. Um, and in my case, I actually started differently. I wanted to write a book about the contemporary history of smell. Because one nice thing is that, well, the key people are still alive. The olfactory receptors were discovered in 1991. So the key people who formed, who shaped the modern development are still alive. So that's not many historians can say that. And mm. I, I, you should not necessarily write them emails like that. Hey, you're still alive, um, <laughs> which I did once, uh, but she, she found it funny. Um, but what I noticed is like, it's still in development. So the key questions, the key open questions in, in a field like olfaction, because it is so young, it's not that there's knowledge lacking. Actually, there's shit tons of knowledge. And it's mm -hmm. never been the case in the history of science that we don't have enough data. We always miss some kind of data, but it's often a question of, well, how, what does the data mean? What are the conceptual foundations of a field? And this field was in flux and still is. Like there's lots of things and bits, bits and bobs moving because of the new data, because of these recent developments. And a lot of the questions are deeply philosophical. Mm -hmm. So it starts, for instance, with the question of, well, what is action odor? What's the relation between the chemical features and the perceptual outcome? So what's happening in between? How to think about the way in which uh, we study smell and what we draw from it? How does it compare to research on the other senses? And I got more interested, more and more interested in, well, there are a couple of questions that we haven't quite addressed, such as, for instance, the ambiguity of odors. I mentioned sulfuryl. Mm -hmm. So far, we had still had the visual input output model. We've got a certain set of features that should lead, like there should be some kind of rule or regularity that leads to this outcome. Well, not with smell. Uh, there seems to be something else going on. And partly that will be, uh, that links, of course, to the biological basis. But I also thought that is quite interesting from a cognitive basis. And a lot of the questions that came from that, well, how do we categorize smells? Um, how can we find better methods to like, to study the categorization of smells? Um, they're partly deeply history and philosophy of science questions, partly cognitive science or philosophy of cognitive science questions. And it was thanks to one of the people I interviewed for the book, uh, Gordon Shepard, who's one of the key people, like uh, he's, he, he partly started the field of olfaction. And when I interviewed him, and I interviewed him several times, he was very generous with his time, very kind man. And by the end, the last interview I had with him, 
uh, so again, I've got a couple of last questions for you for the book because there was one question I wanted to ask. He wasn't having it in the best sense. He was like, no, we'll go for breakfast. I actually have a question for you. I was like, okay, so he, within that breakfast, actually asked, like, so have you thought of going experimental? And uh, that question had never occurred to me because I just gave a talk and he, he saw it. He was like, well, there are a couple of interesting questions here, but they're also scientific. I see their philosophical origin, but they should be like they you can implement them. Mm -hmm. um, and to have somebody like Gordon actually put in the trust or have the confidence that you can learn this, think about it, think about how you want to do this, but you could do this. It's more than just like, okay, scientists should do X, Y, and Z, but also, well, why don't you also do it yourself? And uh, I decided, he, he coached me on what method to pick, and I decided for EEG, uh, so electroencephalography, but of course, that's the worst instrument you could pick for smell because the olfactory cortex is buried, like really buried uh, deep mm -hmm. into the okay. brain. So you get just very weak signals and you can't spatially locate it or just very roughly. Uh, it's not the best method for spatial location. Um, but I was interested in the temporal rhythms of how that might work. And also was more interested in the cognitive uh, influences on perception. And this, of course, you can you can, um, you can can study. And it was so cool because when I said, well, I'm doing EEG, people looked at me like, really? Oh, really? Uh, and then shortly after, a, a series of papers came out by um, a group in Stockholm uh, who do lots of olfaction and EEG now. And I was like, I could, they couldn't have timed it better. Because suddenly everyone's like, oh, there is actually something to get out of here. It's like, yes, <laughs> even 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 a blind chicken find a corn, as, as we say in Germany. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, it actually started out with philosophy of science. I got more interested into the, the kind of cognitive questions. And then I realized they can be tested. Why not? OK, so what's the most controversial or, or counterintuitive philosophical position you've ever held? Well, that smell is objective. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I mean, uh, when, when uh, quite often, I mean, even in scientific papers, the, many have these throwaway sentences at the beginning of each article, and they're seldom thought about well. You also have them in philosophy articles. Sorry, I'm bashing it now, like a whole academia, like philosophers and scientists. But That's you often right. have these, these sentences like, oh, well, smell is such a subjective sense. No, it's not. It's not. It's one of the most reliable senses. I mean, uh, if you think of something like corked wine, for instance, um, which is caused by the compound trichloroanisole or TCA, humans can detect TCA in the 10 to single parts per trillion. It's an incredibly precise sense. Mm. Um, also, there, there, there are just many things. If you've got something like milk, you don't look at the milk, whether it's good or not. You smell it and you're not drinking it because you actually rely on your sense of smell. Mm. And just because it's variable doesn't mean it's unreliable or subjective. So um, many people, when I said, like, I think there's a case to be made, smell is objective. We just need to think about what objectivity means sure. and what the categorization means. So this is uh, by now when I explain what I mean by that, people are like, oh, yes, true. But when I say, well, smell is objective, people first look at you like, that doesn't seem to be right. Well, it is. So that's possibly the most counterintuitive one. Okay. okay. So can you tell me a bit more then about, about how the sense of objectivity and subjectivity makes a difference in that, whether that's intuitive or not. Yeah. 
Um, so one thing is we talk about subjectivity. There, there are different senses, of course, if we, if we mean subjectivity. Either it's something that cannot be accounted for except for by itself, like the perception, the feeling of something. Okay. Um, but with smell, you do have external input and you can also see how, based on the biological mechanisms, how that input leads to a certain kind of sensation. Even though the output, the, the final sensation might vary across people, the mechanisms are still the same. So this is where we have to change it. Um, the next thing is, of course, that people like to think that uh, just because there is this kind of variability, that, um, that it can't possibly be the same thing. Um, and this, this focus on something external need to correspond in a one-to-one -one way uh, to something internal, I, it's, it's for me a pre-scientific assumption about perception. Um, it comes from, it doesn't even apply to vision. So if I'm absolutely polemic, uh, lots of the problems in the philosophy of perception that focus on vision is like, oh, we've got this weird phenomenon here. Does that mean, no, uh, if you just look at how, how vision even works, um, it's not a problem and it's specifically not a philosophical problem to, to be accommodated under some kind of general framework. It just means the conceptual questions behind that. What did we get wrong in our description of it? That should be the philosophical task rather than, well, but philosopher A said this and philosopher B said this and I show with this example, like, who cares? Uh, I'm, it's, it's, that's just not my playing field. Um, and this is when, when people often go, well, you kind of simplify vision a little bit. Yes, I do. Um, for the reasons that um, A, vision is already quite complex, but if you think vision is complex, wait for olfaction. Uh, and complex, complexity should not lead us to, um, to actually overlook these nice nuances that can explain some things we're often puzzled by. So one thing I often hear is like, well, vision is also variable. You've got variations in visions, you've got metamers, etc. Uh, fair enough, but variation is not variation. Um, so you can have variation between people, but the causes of that could be different. And okay. that there are different causes has, of course, different explanations of what the behavior role of, for something is or what, what this variation means. Let's say you've got genetic variation, which you have much more in smell than vision because genetically, uh, genetically visions are most heterogeneous sense. So why does that matter, for instance, if we think about how we think about perception? Well, one thing is, for instance, that the same thing can smell differently. So if you've got cilantro, for instance, or coriander, mm -hmm. you've got, if you have people over for dinner, you've got this one person who goes like, I don't like cilantro. It's not fresh and green to them, but it's pungent and, and soapy. Yeah, yeah. They have a mutation near one of their receptor genes. So they really, they, they don't imagine things. They don't have a weird taste bud. Uh, they, they really perceive it differently. And there is nothing spooky about that. It's a genetic difference. You've got that with many smells, that slight genetic variation can lead to huge differences. My favorite example is actually androsten androstenone, which is a, it's a pig pheromone. Um, and not only pigs can smell it to, you know, attract each other and find each other sexy, but humans can, <laughs> well, you know, they 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 Fine. do they yeah, do sure, they, sure. they they do that kind of stuff, but yeah. humans can smell it too. Not all humans. Some humans can't smell it. Some humans can, and the people who can have completely different perceptions of it. So you've got those who actually don't find it pleasant. They find it deeply unpleasant because to them it smells urinous. Mm. Then you've got those who say I don't like it because to them it smells like body odor. Then you've got those who actually like it. You think oh this is a pleasant smell because to them it smells woody. 
and others find it floral. So you have different hedonics, uh, so different like pleasant, unpleasant associations with it, plus different conceptual images, like from woody floral to urine to body odor. Same chemical, variety of difference. I mean, really, really different perceptions. And the reason for that is um, like you've got multiple reasons, partly genetic variation. And there have been recently more and more studies showing to what extent genetic variations in human links to perceptual variation, then you've got familiarity with an odor. So the more familiar you are with an odor, um, chances are you'll like it more. Also your threshold lowers. Uh, so there are lots of issues here. Uh, sex makes a difference. So whether you're a man or a woman, for instance, that makes, makes also a difference for smell perception. Um, then there's age, because this comes back to a biological feature of smell. You don't have the same receptors in your nose through the course of your lives. So this is a sense that constantly regenerates. You've got neurogen adult neurogenesis in the course of your life, one of the few systems. And your receptors in your nose, uh, the, the sensory neurons, regenerate every three to four weeks. Um, if they didn't, you'd lose the ability to smell just after a few colds or, you know, it as Freud did with cocaine, he actually lost his sense of smell because he just literally blew his, not brains out, but nose out. Uh, so he, he, yes, it's, it's, it's weird. He had like several operations on his nose by his doctor friend, Wilhelm Fleas. And he also did lots of coke. So there's a reason why he hardly mentioned smell. You would think like Freud oh, yes, was sex sure. and everything. He would go for smell. No, he possibly couldn't smell a thing. Um, so this is uh, something I found yeah. quite funny. Who knew? Freud. Uh, but but wait, where was I? Uh, the oh, yeah, the, the, the regeneration. And what happens there is also that if you move environments, so we're constantly surrounded by hundreds of chemicals. So we are living in a chemical environment. So for us, it's, of course, important to know what's in the air. So what if you're lacking a receptor for something specific in your environment? Well, if you move, let's say you move uh, from Britain now to, let's say, South Africa, or you go to Singapore, or you go to Brazil, after a while, actually, your receptor expression changes because humans have about 400 different receptor types and not all of them are constantly expressed. Some people miss certain receptors. So that explains why some people do not perceive a smell, for instance, or perceive certain smells differently. Um, but after a while, your receptor expression changes because your system literally adapts to your environment. So this is, again, where the biology tells a little bit more about what perception is for, what we're actually sensing, and how we're sensing, and why there's why there's sometimes difference in our perceptions. Plus, you and I, we don't have the same receptor expression pattern in our nose, so we really smell the world differently. Because let's say uh, you lack a receptor that I have, and vice versa, and there's a chemical that's um, uh, citronella oxalate so that has kind of a musky but also slightly fruity smell and let's say because we, we we perceive them combinatorially you don't have like one receptor one chemical but multiple receptors detecting one chemical mm -hmm. um so we've got a combinatorial code in the nose but let's say in that combinatorial code you're missing one or two receptors out of i don't know a dozen well then you're perceiving it differently than somebody who has all full dozen receptors expressed you're still perceiving the chemical and you have around quality of it but you, you might miss a nuance of it that somebody else would perceive. And so all these things that were often seen as, or see smell so subjective because we don't seem to perceive the same thing. No, you can explain it. And it's a pretty objective cause. Uh, and you can even you can even see where this comes from. And that's why I say like, um, that's one of the examples where how smell prompts us to rethink 
what are the conceptual foundations of the science, of the philosophy about perception? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us about a philosophical position that you've changed your mind about? Yes, reductionism. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, so <laughs> I, I grew up, so to speak. I did my PhD in Exeter, and that's, of course, the anti-reductionism, pluralism, philosophy of biology group. And I think I'm kind of a black sheep because I recently published a paper on ruthless reductionism and why it why we should actually use it a bit more and why there's a reason to, to keep it and also um, to make an argument, a strong argument for ruthless reductionism. So that's John Bickle's term. Uh, so I moved from John Dupre's anti-reductionism towards the Churchill and Bickle hardcore reductionism. Huh. I think that's a big change. Uh, and I think John yeah. first, uh, so John uh, Dupre, uh, he, I think he first was a bit more abused. I think he didn't take it seriously. <laughs> and then I published the reductionism article. I wonder, I wonder what his, uh, what, I think he gave me uh, like a polite eye roll, like really. Um, but <laughs> it's, I do think there's, uh, there's often a misunderstanding of reductionism. And it's a very popular case uh, to, to argue against, like, oh yeah, we all have all this variation and all this complexity and everything is intertwined, contextual, etc. Fair enough, but a lot of the cases made against reductionism were built on kind of a very old view of reductionism, the kind of uh, Putnam-Oppenheimer view, where you even have an ontological hierarchy of elements and you reduce them down. And that's not necessarily what people like the Churchlands or John Bickle necessarily argue for. So one thing what's important is quite often, especially in cognitive science and neuroscience, um, you try to find explanations through levels of mechanisms. But quite often there are no these immediate levels. So ruthless reductionism is a good way to sort out the mechanisms from the just arbitrary instances where you fill in the gaps of knowledge he currently don't have. Um, and also it might point out that rather than a failure of reductionism, um, what we're having is a failure of how we conceptualize the basic elements and their interaction. And this is where smell is quite important and where, where I changed my mind. This came from an empirical case study. Where quite often when you've got a mixture, like a complex mixture with different odorants, it smells different than the than the parts, like the sum of its parts. It's the kind mm -hmm. of Aristotelian, the whole is more than the sum of its parts mm -hmm. kind of phenomenon. And perfumers know this for ages. So you've got a formula, you put something in, nothing changes. You put more in, nothing changes. You put in a ridiculous amount of that molecule in nothing changes or you have the opposite like it's a tiny drop and the whole thing changes so it's unpredictable uh you've got many things that do not smell like anything in terms of their, their single components so coffee for instance has hundreds of components none of which smell of coffee uh and you often don't smell the individual parts like coffee i'm going to ruin it for you has three percent of indole which smells of shit uh so some <laughs> people actually detect it yeah it's it's it's, it's fecal it's strongly fecal wow, but you don't okay. detect it um it's like luckily otherwise yeah, we sure. wouldn't be so fond of it uh but so this is what people saw like this is it shows like there's an emergent property you can't reduce it to the molecules you can't reduce it just uh, to the sensory pathway not true so the the lab which i which i moonlighted so to speak where i worked in for uh, in, in new york for three years they did a study which was phenomenal they showed that well first of all if we look at the receptor uh, mechanism 
what happens here is actually a modulation. So you have some cells that are suppressed or inhibited. You've got other cells which react to the mixture, but not to any of the individual parts. So you get a complete different code in the nose for, for mixtures than for the sum of their parts, which makes sense because if you think about this combinatorial coding, which I mentioned, mm -hmm. and you've got hundreds of molecules and imagine how many hundreds and hundreds of receptors they, they, they then activate. Well, how does the brain actually discriminate between, it must smear out, it must be completely yeah. indistinguishable signal. So you have to prune, of course, the pattern, or you, you put in some kind of variations by activating cells that wouldn't be by, by single mixtures. So you've got a nice modulation, allosteric modulation, and showing actually that you can link these seemingly emergent properties that were thought to be higher up, some kind of higher up mechanism, you can link them already to the receptors, to the sensory periphery. So you might actually get rid of some of the levels. Um, so this is where I do think ruthless reductionism in terms of have we got the right uh, entities because we need to think about receptors, not chemicals. Uh, what kind of interaction, what kind of mechanism? And that's Basically, that's what changed my mind. It's like, okay, ruthless reductionism in the sense that we need to theorize bottom-up. We need to look at the, the elements uh, rather than just make a case for or against a position because we see the phenomena, there's development, and there's contextuality. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's not like reducible to certain elements. Uh, so this is, this is where I changed my mind. Can you tell us about the most recent work of fiction that you've read? Yes, that actually is a little bit a while ago because I actually read a lot of nonfiction recently. Um, so you can the, tell us about the, that if you like. I would love to because I was stuck at the airport recently and I was reading quite a lot because they have a, they had a bookshop there and uh, it was in Boston, so it was a good bookshop. And sure. so the, the 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 fiction book is actually a recommendation of a friend of mine, a scientist friend of mine, uh, Stuart Feuerstein, and he's like, "You got to read this book." It's like, "Yes, yes, no, you really got to read it." <laughs> um, and I actually have it on my desk because I was hoping you would ask that question. Okay, it's it's by Adam Early Sachs, "The Organs of Sense." And okay. this is one of the coolest and weirdest books. So I really recommend it to people who love weird fiction that has somehow also philosophical bent. This is a story. It's pretty cool. Imagine a young Leibniz, like 18, 19 years old, who hears about an astronomer who's blind and who makes a prediction, um, uh, who makes a prediction uh, that, that nobody else does. So how can you know? He's blind. So he visits that guy. He's in a deep crisis about rationality, uh, kind of deep existential crisis, to visit that astronomer. And it's one of the quirkiest reads I've ever seen. It's, it's an homage, a love letter, but also very mocking of philosophers so there's there's a lot of kind of his weird historical facts some kind of noise uh, that philosophers will find funny and and that's the kind of fiction book i i recently read okay, which which I, it's it's um it's worth a read it really is uh, the guy the author also did actually his uh, phd in history of science so it's mm. he actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to non-fiction books, um, I read two. Uh, one I read at the airport in full. It's a very short one. It's John Cleese on creativity. Okay. Uh, because I'm a huge fan of John Cleese. I think he, mm -hmm. his humor is uh, always gets me gets me into a different realm, um, which is really nice. And I think I'm going to actually get that book and buy like a second time and just give it to my incoming grad student because it's it's I I think he's going to like it and I think it's a good way to start a PhD with that kind of book because. Mm -hmm. 
PhDs always feel like this big thing you have to be so creative about right now and so smart about right now. And, and it's like somebody telling you be spontaneous. You just feel overwhelmed by, by the whole thing oh, yeah, that's sure. at the end. And that's a good book to, to deal with that. The other book is actually, I should have read it ages ago, uh, Anthony Baudin, uh, Kitchen Confidential. Okay. Uh, so, and that is fantastic. It's absolutely splendid. Halfway through, and the language, like he's like you could tell he had to possibly had an editor who had to censor him. Uh, but it's such it's such a wild, like the the life of a chef behind the scene. It's so wild. It's like a subculture. Mm. I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Somebody should do something like that, like academia or philosophy confidential for for our field. So yeah, that's a good idea actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll make a note of that. Okay, what is your favorite TV show? It's a German one. Um, I'll I'll okay. admit I'm I'm the cliche German when it comes to I like crime series, mystery and crime series. So I like the British ones, oh. but I also like the German ones. Is that a cliche? Um, I, don't, I don't know. Is that a German cliche? Is it? Is a German cliche. We have okay. every Sunday at quarter past eight. Uh, so we like our rules. At quarter past eight, we've got the Tatort, which is uh, like crime scene uh, translated, and it's it's several cities and every Sunday and it's kind of since since I left Germany I like to watch it it's kind of a you know a bit of nostalgia sure. um but what I what I really like is a series called Wilsberg which is about somebody who actually owns a bookshop and solves crimes and the the characters are quite nice I also admit I watched lots of British shows like Midsummer Murders and mm-hmm. uh, so yes uh, that's that's kind of <laughs> what I like to watch and of course and I binge watch it, and I often have like once a year. I go through, I, I go, I go through uh, at least one um, like variation. Star Trek. Okay. So throughout the pandemic, I watched, uh, uh, rewatched a lot of um, Next Generation and Voyager, um, because Next Generation gave me hope, uh, and Voyager <laughs> has Captain Janeway, and I'm in Bloomington where Captain Janeway will be born, and we even have a statue here <laughs> with, with which I take lots of selfies with. So. <laughs> selfies with Captain Jane Ray uh but um yeah no but I I admit I was recently asked like well what do you prefer next generation or or, or Voyager I gotta be honest it's next generation but I do love Jane Way can you tell me about um any albums you listened to obsessively when you were younger Oh yes, um, actually, I, I, I like to listen to Die Toten Hosen, which is again a German band. Uh, it's it's a it's a German punk rock band, right. and uh, so they they they've got of course several albums, but uh, there's, uh, I think my favorite song of theirs is Bonnie and Clyde, um, okay. and and I mean there's 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 a like. Totenhausen. I remember actually when they were giving a concert near where I was born, uh, so where I grew up, the town, and it was completely sold out. So I was pretty bummed. And uh, my school, for some reason, had several uh, potential, like several potential tickets. It's kind of a lottery. I didn't win any of them. Uh, and other people did. And I even had one person in my class like, yeah, I actually don't like them, but it's a free ticket. <laughs> That's where I learned early about the realities of life and other people. Uh, but I also had a, I also had a, I also had a wonderful friend who actually, uh, because her mother was obsessed with this band as well. Uh, she actually got me a ticket, and 
it was it was it was really sweet so we all went there and uh for some reason she got a ticket i don't know maybe through her job like there's sometimes these behind the scenes especially in in east germany it's who you know not what you know uh but but i that was one of the most splendid experiences concert experiences it was completely bizarre because you had you had it it was just like a as the germans say a hexenkessel it was like a witch's cauldron the atmosphere was so hot so dynamic and vibrant and the singer is known for forgetting most of his lyrics uh because i think he's drunk i think he's drunk but the whole audience knew of course and it's uh yeah so die toten die as a child what did you want to be when you grew up <clears throat> don't laugh okay. uh, two things uh one thing is a writer I really, really wanted to become a writer and I was obsessed with literature. I loved writing because I know it's actually, you know, when, 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 when you're younger and you don't know what, what you want to do and what you're good at and etc. And at some point I just started writing and people seemed to like what they read. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty cool. So there's kind of positive feedback. Uh, but I didn't think I would do academic writing. I really wanted to do novels and poems, etc. And um, I applied to one of those big writing schools in Germany um, in uh, in Leipzig where it was a rejection. Um, so I, I went for the next best thing, which was a literature theory. And I needed a second subject. So I was, uh, did philosophy but that quickly took over because I realized oh wow this is cool um and there was one thing a writer and okay. I kind of I kind of try to still sneak that in with with academia by not necessarily always sticking to the formats that journals want I'm very sorry about that I do feel I do feel <laughs> bad but I do like to to get some kind of personal note or some kind of more about the writing itself than but this is how we do things like this is how you do the articles like yeah but it's not elegant always um the other thing is and this was said like turned off i wanted to become an actress so i i i, I just i just uh and in a certain way that sticks uh, also with academia if you if you do give talks it can be a little show if you do give a lecture you do yes. want to entertain your students you do want to kind of get them in yeah it, it is a certain performance and i realized uh, I found a comrade in arms when when I ended up in the laboratory of Stuart Feuerstein. So he is a neuroscientist, but an unusual one. So he was a theater director prior to going into neuroscience. So he, he did his PhD when he was 40, because he was a theater director in Philly, uh, then went into science, uh, and now he's interested in the history and philosophy of science. So he's kind of a jack of all trades. But he has a similar, like if you see him giving a talk, um, you can tell he's from the theater. Like it's so engaging, it's it's hard, it's mesmerizing. It's like he's quite a personality and he knows how to entertain people and how to make them laugh. And I thought, this is, I like that. And he writes so beautifully. So he wrote two books, uh, Ignorance and Failure. And we're kind of kidding that the third book will be Stagnation. He finds it less funny than I do, uh, <laughs> but there will be a third book, but I'm not going to to, to tell the title because it's gotta be, it's gotta be a surprise. Um, but he also has this kind of uh, very, very, you could say strong passion for both acting as well as writing, but he is an academic and he brings it in. So it's still with me in a certain way. Is there anything you don't like about being a philosopher? Oh, this is going to be a brutally honest answer. I don't like <laughs> academic philosophy. I have a okay. big issue with academic philosophy. I love philosophy as a practice. And there are some fantastic uh, philosophers in, in academia, but there's a lot of bullshit. And it has become too much form over substance, too much about how you express something rather than 
what you're doing and how you think through something. And uh, this might be partly because of the professionalization of, um, of philosophy in specific areas of philosophy, but too often it becomes self-referential. And I think okay. it's, it, it drains the life out of what I like about philosophy. So this is, I, I do have some issues. And I also think that um, it's because philosophers are often assumed to be smart, which by the way is not, not true of any other profession. I, I, I've met smarter people outside philosophy. Uh, there are some very smart people, but because of that appeal, philosophers must be smart or they are smart, similar with mathemat mathematicians possibly, they kind of think that of themselves too. And I think that's not, it's never good to think you're smarter than you actually are. Okay, and, and our final question on a, on a more positive note, what, what do you like about being a philosopher? Oh, I like I like that you actually end with it because there was a, there was a reason why I got into philosophy and I do think it's one of the most interesting and, and important ways of, of of dealing with the world of dealing with other people and yourself uh, the freedom there is something and this is links to why I don't like professional philosophy there is a freedom in terms of the way you can ask questions and you can dig deeper into various fields like as a philosopher you can go into something related to physics something related to mathematics something related to neuroscience or to ethics or, or politics it you can there's a freedom associated with philosophy that you don't have in many other fields you can learn completely new things. Uh, of course, you have to you have to learn them if you want to think philosophically about neuroscience. You have to know neuroscience. Mm -hmm, sure. But knowing a lot a lot of about neuroscience neither makes you a neuroscientist nor a philosopher of neuroscience. So there is there is a there is a style towards it about asking the questions of actually asking new questions. I think what what I like about philosophy is that if done well you can come up with new questions and new perspectives. And that's exciting. I mean, I do love philosophy. I just sometimes hate how it's being instantiated uh, because I think it doesn't do philosophy itself justice. And there's like, it's similar to like, blimey, I can see what you can be. Okay, thank you very much, Anne. That was great. I like your questions. Uh, and I, I'm glad I could nerd out about Captain Janeway. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Out of the Vat a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.